Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought we could do a single episode on King, but my guest David Justice and I were having so much fun and I had planned to talk about so much that I had to turn our conversation into two episodes. So I've released a part one and a part two for you and they're both available for you now. In this first episode, we will discuss a variety of ways we see King's words and work and life being appropriated for the preservation of today's oppressive and exploitative systems. Then, we'll dive into King's understanding of God, what the beloved community actually looked like for him, and how he thought we should pursue the community of love. In part two, right, the second episode, we will do a deep dive into King's triple evils of racism, poverty, and militarism. We'll talk about King as a closet democratic socialist, as well as his thoughts on Marx and communism. And finally, we'll look at how King related to labor toward the end of his days. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I hope you check out both of the episodes. Last thing I want to say before we get started is that for the months of January, February, and March, all Patreon contributions will be going to support the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development in Nashville, Tennessee, If you haven't checked out, I think it's episode 25, my interview with Rosemary and Benny was really fun, and I hope you'll consider joining me in supporting and financing the important work of building and expanding worker cooperatives. But enough of that, here's my conversation with David Justice. David Justice, welcome to Faith in Capital. Thanks so much for having me. I've uh, I've really learned a lot listening to this podcast, and I love what you're doing here. So I'm I'm really honored to be here. Cool. Well, uh, let's have some fun. So we got lots to talk about. Uh, we've kind of been uh, uh, wrestling with these ideas for a little bit now. So today we're going to be diving into the appropriation of King. We'll talk about the theological vision of the beloved community. Um, I want to talk about the triple evils, uh, socialism and communism, labor. So all of this really, really fun stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think you are someone who is going to be uh, a, a really helpful voice for us to kind of navigate all of these big ideas of kings. Um, but first, before we dive into that, before we before we kind of hear about what you're up to and, and, and such, I, I just want to start off with a quote of King from one of his sermons called, Can a Christian Be a Communist? And he says, Indeed, it may be that communism is a necessary corrective for a Christianity that has been all too passive and a democracy that has been all too inert. Mm. Now, now we have... I just want to kind of like throw that out there. We got a really fun show um, uh, today. I'm so grateful to have you on our uh, uh, in conversation today, David. So let's go ahead and start off uh, a little bit with an introduction. I mean, you and I, we're both two white dudes. We're both racialized as white every single where, you know, everywhere we go. Uh, so yeah, could you kind of share a little bit about where you're at these days? Like what's your relation to King? And then also, how have you thought about 
studying King as a person who is racialized as white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, happy to. So I'll give a really brief sort of bio. Um, I grew up in like a white, non-denominational Christian church. Um, went to, you know, Christian school and uh, went to a Christian college also. Um, but there, at the end of high school, beginning of college, had kind of what you'd call like a faith crisis. And in that point, started kind of questioning American Christianity and things that had been sort of put forward as normative, um, that like patriotism and Christianity were like good things to, to sort of tie together and started calling out in a question. Um, and then moved forward, pursued a master's degree in philosophy, uh, then uh, pursued a master's degree in theology. And I originally wanted to do a study of like church fathers or patristics, it's called. Um, and then <clears throat> during my master's program, the professor who's currently my advisor, Dr. Leonard McInnes, came in and gave a guest lecture on Martin Luther King. And it just kind of blew me away. And I had sort of by chance, actually, um, partially by recommendation of Chris Ruth, a mutual friend, uh, had read James Cone's The Cross on the Lynching Tree um, that summer before I started my master's program. And that really just kind of blew up a lot of what I thought I knew about American history and the uh, history of the American church. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then... So I wrote my master's thesis on King and rethinking nonviolence in King's thought, and I'm trying to continue that project now in my dissertation of trying to really recover the, the radical nature of King's theological project. Um, and something we'll be focusing on here today, uh, you know, a big part of that is a critique of American capitalism and the ways that that really just distorts... Uh, the human person. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of a brief intro for where I'm at and what I'm doing. That's wonderful. And, and, uh, I'm ex thank you so much for, for sharing that and for, uh, sharing with us kind of like coming on the show to have a fun conversation about King. I appreciate you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you also you wanted to talk about some about sort of as a white person engaging. Absolutely. King, yes. I, yes. Please. Which I think is, uh, yeah, super important. Um, because as we've discussed, uh, I think that there is a real problematic tendency that can happen among like quote unquote progressive white people um, that we can start to think that we're like doing black people or minority people a favor by working on these uh, civil rights projects or trying to work against racism or that kind of thing. Um, and I think that King's thought really points out the fact that that's not the case um, and that whiteness really is destroying uh, white people's ability to be human if we accept uh, what I would call the idolatrous white Christianity um, that's been so prevalent in America and is really a product of um, the enslavement of people for uh, centuries. So <clears throat> King uh, talks repeatedly in his uh, sermons and in his speeches about how hatred and racism distort the personality of white people. Um, 
So one of my favorite quotes uh, there, he says, I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors to want to hate myself. Because every time I see it, I know what it does to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. Um, that hate and racism really distort your ability to see the world rightly and to be in relationship with God. Um, so that white people really, we're certainly not doing this as a favor to anyone else. That we're doing this to try to recover our own moral and spiritual integrity. Um, that this is a necessary project in that way. I think, yeah, I think that's really helpful um, that King certainly did not see this as any kind of uh, moral uh, something to be praised when uh, when white folks devote their lives to fighting white supremacy, um, and and that that whiteness as an ideology distorts the personhood of people who are racialized as white. I would also want to add, though, I I also think that King understood white racial identity as a form of social control race race as a as a way uh, as a means of controlling people not only who are racialized as non-white who are rendered inferior um, assigned this inferior racial makeup um, but then also that it was used to oppress and and kind of disguise the exploitation and oppression of white folk um, and and I think that'll probably kind of come up throughout the conversation. But yeah, on one hand, that white identity distorts the potentiality, the beauty of, of people who are racialized as, uh, as white. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's liberative in one aspect, but then also that it undermines our solidarity, there, right? or this, this movement that he was trying to do, this cross-racial, anti-imperialistic, economic liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he has, uh, he talks about a conversation that he had when he was in prison one time with some of the sheriffs and police officers that were imprisoning him. Mm -hmm. And he asks about their wages and says, you're just as poor as we are. Like, you should be out there marching with us. Yeah, so he's, he's saying, he's like, listen, we have more in common than you think we do. And right. as long as you fail to see our common interests and our common liberation, then... We then I'm going to continue to end up in this prison, and you're going to continue to stay uh, poor uh, and exploited by people people more powerful and wealthier than you. So yeah, that's excellent. That's I appreciate you sharing that, and uh, and also faithfully committing your life to the work of uh, of King, but also fighting white supremacy. Let's go ahead and uh, dive in. This is an interesting season. We, we with uh, around the MLK holiday. Let's start off by talking about the appropriation of MLK. So in what ways have you, David, seen the mainstream discourse around King appropriate his name and his legacy, right? Like what kind of problematic King talk or maybe King memes, right? Or, or King <laughs> tweets, I mean, they're endless. Do you see being had, uh, again, especially during this season right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so... I first real quick want to acknowledge that, that there is some good scholarly work out there trying to sort of maintain and recover this radical king. So uh, you're probably familiar with Cornel West has a 
collection called The Radical King mm-hmm. that he put out within the last few years. Um, there's also a collection called collection of essays called The Domestication of Martin Luther King Jr. that pushed back against some of these. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you're, you're certainly right that regardless of the good work that's been done, there's been serious appropriation of King's legacy and King's theological project to kind of support the status quo. Um, so people, I think, often like to quote that line from his I Have a Dream speech that he wants to live in a world where his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then they're like, all right, yes, it. Yes. Like, <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, like, it'll get pointed out that, <clears throat> you know, we had these pieces of legislation passed under LBJ. Um, we had a black president. Um, but sort of racism has been mostly dealt with. That there's a few, like, you know, there's David Duke. He's a racist. But, like, not, you know, generally people aren't racist. Racism isn't a real problem. And that the only people that keep racism alive are the people that are talking about racism. Mm. Um, but this is a really popular conservative talking point <clears throat> among people like Rush Limbaugh and others that that sort of the racists are the people that call you a racist. Um, and they really ignore the fact that that 1960s legislation has been rolled back in serious ways um, since it was passed, um, that it was inadequate in various ways at the time, um, <clears throat> that wealth disparity has increased since then, um, that the black family now has like a tenth of the wealth of the median white family, um, that there's now increasing uh, racialized effects of climate change, uh, mass incarceration really didn't get going until after King was assassinated, um, that there's all these ways that we've actually moved backwards in terms of racial discourse and racial equity in the world. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you naming just the, the long list of uh, of ways in which white supremacy uh, persists uh, so so blatantly. I mean, those are just kind of like the, the surface level, like blatant ones. And um, I also appreciate you naming, you, you said a point there about, oh yes, that King did a, King was great. He did great work back then um, and he succeeded. And then, and now uh, anyone who brings up any kind of critique of whiteness or white supremacy, they're the ones who are being racist. So, so that's an interesting point um, that that I agree with you. That I, that I see that King King is used today today to shame and, and to um, kind of block any kind of critique of persistent problems that we have uh, around race and economics and and, and militarism today. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, a term that I like around this um, is disremembering, something that Eddie Gloud names in his book, uh, Democracy in Black, um, where he discusses King as well as sort of current problems in American quote-unquote democracy. But uh, yeah, that there there's serious ways, one, that King's legacy has been rolled back, and also that his legacy was never accomplished in the first place, that sort of the radical nature of his critique of American colonialism, American capitalism, and the flaws that were built into the American system. I think that's another way that King gets appropriated as sort of like 
the true patriot or something, or the defender of the U.S. Constitution, mm. um, that ignores the fact that America was founded as a racist country, um, that, like, slavery is sort of presupposed in the Constitution, and that America never could have existed without the enslavement of black people. Um, that, that, so King's not just trying to, like, make America true to itself or something, but is trying to radically change the fundamental nature of America. Along similar lines, uh, there's a there's the sense of using King to to justify and uh, kind of like turning King into a neoliberal, uh, particularly around the idea of freedom, and that uh, Americans were were obsessed with this idea of freedom, and that freedom is specifically the notion that. Uh, individuals should be able to basically choose their life outside of any kind of uh, other or or community or uh, especially com- communal responsibility. That freedom is the will for individuals to kind of self-actuate their their future and their well-being. Um, and it's also uh, freedom is the divine right to accumulate and possess privately an endless uh, degree of wealth and or or commodities. And while King talked a lot about freedom, that is just so far removed from King's understanding of freedom, which I think freedom for King comes about within community. And it comes about um, within this sense of this deep sense of communal responsibility that we have um, not only just for the other, but also um, that others have to ourselves. And yeah, uh, the, so freedom. I also think it, it was about this ability to to participate as mutuals, rather than he talks a lot. He talks a lot about this subject object relationship that yeah. that people are exploited or that people are used for other people's means. But I think true freedom for King, very far from this neoliberal capitalist understanding of freedom, is that King is about radical enabling of equality of dignity and personhood. It's about mm-hmm. uh, freedom can be known when we have equality of access to basic necessities, which we'll talk about later, like wages and housing. And then and freedom was grounded in this, this ability to have agency and to democratically shape the communities in which we live in. Yeah, you, you brought to mind uh, a proverb that sometimes gets brought up that I've seen in, in womanist theology, uh, the idea, not I think, therefore I am, but uh, we are, therefore I am. Uh, mm. I, think I am, I think I'm messing that up. <laughs> but yeah, the idea that, that we can only, like you said, find ourselves in community. Um, and King often said sort of that, I can't be who I'm supposed to be unless you are who you are supposed to be. Um, that we're, mm. you know, tied together um, inescapably. And that, yeah, the, for him, the beloved community, as we'll, we'll get into, really is this, this community where the dignity and worth of each person is, is fully respected and appreciated. Um, and I think that has something to do with the fact that King almost never talks about heaven. Um, he talks a lot about, though, how the Christian religion should affect us 
in the here and now. Mm, so mm-hmm. he doesn't, he's not at heaven because he doesn't believe in eternal life. He clearly does believe in that and in a sort of eschatological or a coming kingdom that will be fully realized. But he wants to say that if your, if your religious commitments, if your church aren't doing anything to affect poverty, to uh, to give people the basic necessities that they need in the here and now, then you might as well give up. Like that that's that that's uh, I think he calls it a spiritually moribund religion um, that's just waiting to die. Um, that religion needs to have material consequences. Um, and I mean he's just taking this right out of Jesus's public de- declaration of Jesus's ministry. Um, where Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says, you know, I'm here to bring liberation to the poor, um, sight to the blind, here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Um, Yeah, so that this, it needs to have very serious uh, material consequences for it to, for religion to be worthwhile. Yes, and in the same, in a similar vein, so uh, two other points that uh, that I think are coming from that uh, that I'm hearing is on one hand, King can be turned into a moralizer that he was just primarily or even like solely concerned about the realm of ideas that that he thought uh, and he lived a life that he tried to change the world by spouting ideals and preaching um, again like theological ideas and concepts instead of direct action through the form of Gandhian nonviolence um, yeah. and. Yeah, kind of stripped. Uh, he's often stripped of his his groundedness in the in the material now, and in, in what he says is the, uh, a new world now. What I hear you saying, and then yeah, yeah, and along those lines, I also think that King is often turned into a hero. Uh, uh, he's made into an individual hero, um, and and what I think that does is that it turns the work that he did and that I think we need to be doing today away from collective organizing toward individualist activism. There's this disregard or a denial of the communal effort and voices and participation that is both needed today and that the civil rights movement was. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, So both that, yeah, that we can't, like, people will sometimes talk about, like, you know, we need to find the next Martin Luther King or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that, that overlooks the fact that King stepped into a very long tradition of resistance that was communal, that was built up over years and decades. Um, and that, I mean, he was working towards this in his life. He did choose to be in a place where he could be resisting Jim Crow and other kinds of segregation and domination. Um, but that also, I mean, some historians have said that the movement made King. Um, and I think that that's perhaps a bit overstated, but it, it names an important point um, that King was far from doing this by himself. Um, and that often uh, some of the people that were integral of the movement are overlooked, especially uh, black women that were really uh, the most prominent in the movement, uh, the most prominent in the black church, which was central to the movement, uh, very integral to organizing the movement. 
Um, and that's another way that King, um, you know, had failures, that he was not a perfect person, um, that we can't idealize him, that he let some of the sexism and patriarchy of his time uh, persist in his thought, even though he was trying to work towards a new world and a better world, that he he still had issues to work through there. Um, and, yeah, that he was growing and developing. And I think that also speaks to something, another way that King gets appropriated that I, that I think is important is in delegitimizing current activists or current ways that people are resisting white supremacy, um, saying, like, you know, why can't you be like Martin Luther King and those, like, respectable people? And that overlooks the fact that King, throughout his life, was committed to a kind of dialectical resistance, um, one that was always uh, mutating and morphing and trying to look for ways to disrupt the status quo. Um, so he uses, you know, marches and sit-ins in the South, and that is effective in uh, resisting certain kinds of oppression. But then in the North, those are not as effective, and he's rethinking these resistance strategies when he moves north and is looking towards more uh, economic withdrawal and like even shutting whole cities down. Uh, some of the stuff we can talk about later with the Poor People's Campaign. Um, so to say, uh, for example, like Mike Huckabee did in 2015, that King would be appalled by the Black Lives Matter movement <laughs> is just utterly ridiculous. It's absurd. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... I mean, you know, he wouldn't agree with everything that every Black Lives Matter movement person has said or, or whatever, but he sure. he was always, you know, he was even willing to work with people that were considered like gangs in Chicago, and he continued to work with Stokely Carmichael after Stokely Carmichael rejected nonviolent resistance. Um, so he, he very much, he was committed to his way, but his way was, was like I said, dialectical and trying to find new ways of resisting. And he also was very open to working with other people that might not share his methods, but had the same goal in mind of, of black liberation and of freedom really for all in community. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh we're definitely going to get into that about similar goals, but different methods and working with us. Uh, so, oh yeah, there's some good stuff there. The last thing I, I don't know if you have anything else you want to bring up, but I had one more thing around the appropriation of King is that King is made out to be a defender um, and a, a supporter. His, his whole work and life and theological vision it apparently is about um, building and expanding uh, black the black middle class, black capitalism. Mm. And to me, I, I don't anywhere uh, in his writings and in his work see a king who's trying to get more black folk into a middle class, and, or, or, or let alone that being his, especially his, not his primary goal. Um, especially, I, I think he spent the latter half of his life really wrestling with and being abandoned by northern black communities who mm. self-identified as middle class or pursued, who had kind of internalized the capitalist um, American dreams of individualistic desires and concerns that, uh, yeah, that came with that American dream of endless compounding private accumulation. And just mm. to, to, I mean... 
uh, two, two quotes that popped in my mind when I was uh, thinking about this was in the sermon that we're going to talk about at the very end about communism, says, can a Christian be a communist? He says, I'm not concerned about 5% of the Negroes living all right. Uh, and, he, and then he also threw out this, uh, this idea about, he says, Marx reveals the danger of the profit motive as the sole basis for an economic system. So I just, I think clearly he is not interested in saying, no, capitalism is great. This economic system is awesome. We just need uh, to allow black folk to competitively compete on equal basis with white folk. That, that does not seem to be a goal at all for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he, he, uh, I think a description that I've heard of King that I really liked um, is a practical idealist. Um, uh, or you can also think of it as utopian in the way that someone like Gustavo Gutierrez would use that term in the sense of like working towards a goal that has real effects in the here and now. Um, but you're also sort of working within the here as you work for the future. Um, so King did work within capitalist systems. Um, like he had a thing called Project Breadbasket um, that was trying to like get black people better jobs and get them out of exploitative, uh, you know, labor practices. Um, but that, that certainly was not the goal, um, that he very clearly critiques capitalism over and over again. And with more fervor, um, later in life when he's more willing to kind of let some of that show. Um, yeah. And he recognizes, I think, as, uh, Cornell West says that, high wages doesn't mean democracy or access to power. Hmm. Um, and that King is very committed to both of those things. Um, he sees power as a good thing, as something to be used um, in the achieving of the beloved community and better societies. Um, so he's not, we can talk about that more when it comes to the beloved community, but power is something that, you should want and you should make use of um, that, that that's an important point for him. Excellent. Yeah. This is a great point for our, our, uh, a great place for our transition. Let's go ahead and dive into his influences. So I want to name kind of all the socialists and communists in his life later on, uh, but more broadly, who were some of the primary influences on the life and the faith and the work of King? Yeah. So you definitely need to name uh, his parents, um, you know, he was, and with his parents comes the black church tradition. Um, so King liked to say that, you know, his daddy was a preacher, his brother was a preacher, his great grandfather was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, that he's, you know, coming into this tradition of, of black preachers and the black church, um, and that you can't really separate King from that legacy. So I think that that's um, his family and then fam like both like immediate family and then family understood more broadly to include the black church tradition is both his intellectual foundation and his spiritual foundation. Um, and this is something that Lewis Baldwin and Rufus Burrow Jr. have done a lot of great work on. Um, but that before he got to Boston University, before he read the Boston Personalists, he had what Rufus Burrow Jr. calls 
a homespun personalism, um, meaning that he very much appreciated the dignity and worth of humans and their personality and their transcendent value that's rooted in God's love for people. Um, that that's something that he was raised with, something that he saw in his family relationships. He'll talk about how he saw his father and mother interacting that way, and that's how they interacted with him uh, to affirm his own dignity and worth in the face of a world that wanted to deny that. Um, and also just his way of approaching the Bible, his way of even seeing the world is very much tied into ways that the black church has done that um, for centuries in America, um, namely always working towards a holistic spirituality, um, one that takes into account uh, body as well as spirit, um, and one that uh, sees God as sort of present and active in the world. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one area of influence. Um, another one I mentioned briefly are uh, the Boston Personalists, um, so Harold DeWolf and others are these people that he encounters at Boston University during his PhD, um, that he had read some in his previous education, um, that are trying to talk about a new way of, of seeing humanity and Christianity is based around personality as sort of the, the ontological or fundamental nature of the universe, that, that personality both human and divine is kind of the the basic way of of understanding the world. Uh, I, I think you I think you named him really well. I I, I heard you say his parents, um, the black church tradition, uh, perhaps, and then later on, I think more intensely the black social gospel, which mm-hmm. Gary Dorian incredibly articulates. Uh, so. The so he, so King is incredibly impacted by people like W. E. B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, and then mm-hmm. Benjamin Mays, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, uh, Howard Thurman. These folks, their work, their their lives had huge impacts on him. And then yeah, yeah. and then the personalism, uh, absolutely. When he gets to his uh, his doctorate up in Boston, let's go ahead and dive into the question of his theological vision of the beloved community, right? The, the community of love, he kind of, he sometimes coins it. So how would you say, how did King understand God? And what was King's theological vision of the beloved community? Great question. So I think starting with God, um, King's most common description of God, I think comes from First John and just saying that God is love. Um, and then King will go on to elaborate on what he means by that because he understands that love is a word that gets thrown around a lot but not always used correctly so he often says I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love I'm talking about a strong demanding love Um, so this love that is working towards transformation um, that's working towards uh, even disintegration of certain things that are incommensurable with the beloved community Um, and that King sees God very much like in the black church tradition as a God who is uh, transcendent has set up the universe in a way that it is working towards justice but also is very imminent and present and within 
the community of the oppressed as they're working towards their liberation. Um, so God, uh, you know, drawing on language from the personalist, God is fundamentally personality. That God is not like a divine lawgiver or some kind of deistic idea. That God is present and active in history and that God will always ultimately work out things um, for the good of God's people um, in concert with God's people that are faithfully working towards justice and liberation. I'm, yeah, I'm hearing a few uh, a few different points here. I'd like to kind of like draw them out. This is really good. So on one hand, I think we could say that God or King understands God to be personal, uh, and it's it's very intimate. It's almost to a degree a, a finite side of God. Uh, on the other hand, there's an infinite side of God, and that's that that is that God is the source of all being, and by that he means. Uh, and I'm going to quote Rufus Burrow here in God and Human Dignity, that, quote, each person possesses an inviolable sacredness by virtue of being called into existence and sustained by God, end quote. So I, so I think on, on one hand, we can say that King saw this finite, infinite God that is incredibly personal and grounded and committed to the, the present moment. And then also God kind of transcends that, that finitude and has a degree of power, I, I want to be careful to use the word omnipotence, but uh, mm -hmm. King's kind of a thought, what I heard you saying on, on love and God's power, is that God's love has the power to accomplish its goals, right, with mm -hmm. the participation of the created beings. God can't just do whatever God wants. Um, uh, King doesn't subscribe to that kind of absolutist power theology, but God's power can accomplish its goals with human beings and with creation. Yeah, yeah, that there is this, you know, that that King rejects what he sees as an earlier, um, more white social gospel idea that sort of the the future is inevitably moving towards like goodness and sort of like people are inherently good and you know as the history moves forward we're inevitably progressing. Um, whether that's like a fair read of them is a different question, but that seems to be King's critique of them that, and he very much rejects that and says that, you know, that history is not just good, that history can be used by the forces of evil to stop progress. Um, so there's also a sense that, yeah, that God is present and that God will always be working with and through God's faithful people and that God's purposes will be accomplished in that way ultimately. What does the beloved community really look like? What does this community of uh, of agopic love for King really look like? Because uh, I, I think there are really two foundational beliefs for King, and one that you've already mentioned is the the interrelatedness of all things, and then two, this essential dignity, this personhood. What he uh, he often uses the word somebodiness, which I mm -hmm. think he says he got from his mother. Um, this essential. Mm -hmm. Uh, inerrant somebodiness in all humanity. Those two things, the interrelatedness and then the, the dignity personhood. Uh, what does, what do those two things look like in his vision of the beloved community? Yeah. Yeah. So I think a sort of short description <clears throat> of beloved community is a place where all personality is in right relationship, both human and divine 
and that the dignity and worth of each person is properly respected. Um, so just this place where, like you're saying, the inherent uh, dignity and worth of people is respected and that that's present in community where right relationship is uh, possible and actualized within people. Um, but that's sort of what King is working towards throughout his life. Um, and yeah, and we want to talk some about, too, like how, how he wants to get there, right? That yeah. What, what, um, what he sees as accomplishing this. Um, and definitely, like you named, Gothic love is certainly at the heart of this. And like I said earlier, this is, this is a powerful love, um, a love that's sort of, that's transforming uh, history. Um, that is also uh, prophetic in the sense that it's calling us to look past what we think is reasonable and towards something that might seem ridiculous or idealistic, but actually is sort of the only avenue for salvation. Um, so he'll talk sometimes about how Jesus was discounted sometimes and continues to be discounted as like an idealistic dreamer, that really Jesus was practical in calling for love of enemies and other things that seem crazy right now. Um, because King is trying to call, really, I think the beloved community is a new world um, that he's trying to inhabit, uh, very much similar to the idea of like a realized eschatology where the kingdom of God is both present now and also will be fully realized in the future. Um, but that we can experience some of that now. Yeah, and I would add that I think creating the conditions and, and restructuring the systems that we lived in and, and restructuring our communities is is an important aspect of realizing this beloved community. And he definitely talked about doing this through direct action, uh, very disruptive agitating direct action in the form of Ghanaian nonviolence. And one of the things he's often known for is, is addressing the triple evil of poverty. He says, true, mm -hmm. compa true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes mm -hmm. to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And so I think mm -hmm. that kind of points to um, what he thinks needs to happen in order to realize a more beloved community in the world that he lived in. Right, right. And your your previous guest, uh, Pastor Andrew Wilkes, I think really put this well when he pointed out the need for coercion within nonviolent resistance. Um, and that's something that King names explicitly. Um, so one of those times is when King is giving his first speech to the Montgomery Improvement Association, uh, which later became the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, but they were deciding whether to continue the Montgomery bus boycott, because it was originally planned to only be a day and ended up being more than a year. Uh, but he has about a half hour to prepare this speech um, that he gives at Holt Street Baptist Church. And he says something that I've, I'm still working through, uh, but this quote that I really love, where he says, quote, I want to tell you this evening that it's not enough for us to talk about love. Love is one of the pivotal points of the Christian faith. There's another side called justice, and justice is really love and calculation. Justice is only 
Justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. Mm. The Almighty God is not only the God standing up through Isaiah saying, I love you, Israel. He's also the God that stands up before the nations and says, be still and know that I am God, that if you don't obey me, I will break the backbone of your power and slap you out of the orbits of your international and national relationships. Standing beside love is always justice, and we are only using the tools of justice. Not only are we using the tools of persuasion, but we've come to see that we've got to use the tools of coercion, end quote. Um, so that, that very forceful, militant, coercive... Break the backbone of your power. I love that, yes. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's... I mean, that's something that King talks about more as he... Uh, moves on as he encounters more resistance, um, as he gets abandoned, as you were saying, by uh, more uh, middle-class people, um, by northern allies. But that's something that's always present in King's thought, um, this sort of radical notion of disrupting power relationships and reordering them. And I love that quote you put of... Uh, restructuring an, ed an edifice that produces beggars. Yes. Um, that it really is a systemic problem, um, and that he wants us to see that poverty is something that's done to people, that it's not something that's, you know, just because they're lazy or stupid or something, um, that it's something built into the capitalist system that needs to be rejected. Excellent. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and, and, and wrap this up here because uh, I think this has been a great conversation. We've, do we've dove into kind of common appropriation um, and a misremembering, I think you said, of, of King. And then we've spent some time talking about the theological vision of the beloved community. And I, I think in part two, uh, let's go ahead and we'll dive into the triple evils, King, Marx, and communism, and finally King's approach in relation to labor. So I just want to say, David, thanks so much for joining us part one. Uh, listeners, I hope you stick around and check out part two. Friends, thanks for listening. And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.